Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. President John F. Kennedy once said, conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth. Now, every once in a while, I'll have somebody who's looking to get into the financial services industry ask me if they should go up for an MBA degree or what licenses they should be considering. And oftentimes, my recommendation is they get a degree in psychology because the truth is, is in this line of work, understanding people, why they make decisions they make as it relates to money and what really makes them tick, I think is is as valuable, more valuable than a lot of the technical knowledge that comes with this kind of work. In fact, there's a whole research area of the industry called behavioral finance that emerged in the late 80s and is a kind of an ongoing study. And the objective really is just to, to understand that, why people make the decisions they make. Some of you may be familiar with Dalbar, which is a research company. They compile a number of different statistics related to the investment industry, one of which is mutual fund flows, money going in, money going out. And every year they publish this study that shows what the average investor did versus a variety of markets. And as recently as the end of 2021, the S&P 500 averaged about 9.5% and the average investor earned about 3.6%. And so the obvious question is, well, what happened to that extra 5.9% of gains? And it's not all attributable to high commissions and fees. The implication is, is that it's the decisions people make, buying at the wrong time, selling at the wrong time, this kind of thing. So today's guest is going to talk to us about how to take advantage of the other side of that coin, which is not only understanding why people make the decisions they make and how they make decisions, but how to profit from it. His name is Paul Straley. He serves as the president and senior portfolio manager at USA Mutuals Advisors Incorporated. Paul started his career as a derivatives trader and a portfolio manager at Goldman Sachs and Hull Trading Company. He traded derivatives primarily on the Chicago Board Options Exchange and in the European derivatives markets. Further, Paul was the principal at the Carlyle Group on the Quantitative Market Strategies team and was a global head of solutions at RTS Real-Time Systems, serving on the firm's management board. So it's my pleasure to welcome, coming to us from Boston, Massachusetts, Mr. Paul Straley. Paul, welcome to Upthinking Finance. I'm psyched to be here, Emerson. Thanks for having me. That's great. Well, let's hope it stays that way. So I guess the place to start is, I mean, I'm always kind of interested when I talk to portfolio managers, how you got into the quantitative side, I guess you could say, of the business. And I know you work for big firms. Maybe just give everybody a background on how you kind of got from there to here, because I always think that's interesting, what drives people. Yeah, I'll take you back. Back to the beginning, really, I think tells my story, but it also tells why I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is trading for a fund in a way that would typically reserve for like a managed futures trading strategy. And one thing you'll see, there's a very consistent theme in my background, which is I value systematic discipline strategies with a very high probability expectation of consistent returns and modest peak to trough drawdowns. So we also need to have multiple risk layers. And you'll see how that sort of the education of a trader slash portfolio manager came to be when I tell this brief overview and feel free to interject at any time. But more than anything, what we do is we look to have statistical positive expectation on every trade and we run very tight risk controls. So if you think of a blackjack card counter, we only put on trades when there's a positive asymmetry of risk versus reward. 
just like a blackjack card counter, we might bet more or less based on how much edge we perceive there to be. Or we might just sit in our hands and not trade at all. But that gives you sort of a background of what we're doing before I jump into how we got here. And really, by analogy, because you're in LA, Emerson, I'm going to use an analogy for surfing, even though I'm not sure you being from St. Louis, that that's something you do. But <laughs> my son does. Okay, well, then he can appreciate this, maybe. But we're sort of surfers waiting in the water, assessing incoming waves. And the wave doesn't need to be perfect, but it just needs to be good enough for a smooth ride. And that's when a trade will trigger or we'll jump on a certain wave. The second part of that, which is almost more important, is the risk management portion of it, which is we never want to be swimming naked. And so we make sure our drawstring is tight, tight, and we might even wear suspenders or something, a wetsuit or something, maybe a better analogous term there. But we're constantly psychotic about risk management. So how I got to be this person <laughs> is really comes from my father. My father was a mutual fund manager, actually, in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And I don't think he loved the loneliness of being a manager when things were really, really bad. I don't think anybody does. I know doing what you do, I'm sure it's, it can be painful. And as particularly when his opinion was against the grain and the grain sort of went against him. So he loved interacting with people. And so we went into a long bear market that serendipitously began with my birth in 1973 and ended in 1975. And he ended up taking a job with the to run the MIT endowment, and which quite literally was a more collegial environment. And I really learned a lot from his experiences running the endowment. I mean, I was only 14 at the time, but one of the days I remember was the 1987 crash. And he had with, with some PhD or Nobel folks at MIT figured out that out-of-the-money puts were extremely cheap and were, were far too cheap based on what markets were doing at that time. Because I don't know if you were trading before 87, but things were a bit rocky and the, the puts were way too cheap and they ended up covering the entire portfolio, endowment portfolio. And I just remember the next day after the crash, it was a big deal where we lived. And I was like, dad, how are things going? And they had actually made a little bit of money that day. So that really got me into thinking about markets. But of course, after this wonderful introduction to markets and teachable moment, I went the complete opposite direction and decided to set up to be a lawyer. And I really failed that first lesson, but it stayed in my brain. And then also in college, I read a book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which is sort of the Bible for efficient market hypothesis. And basically, the book says there's no real edge in pure trading. And so that kind of turned me off to it as well. So on a chance encounter, I ended up going to Chicago and I jumped in the visitor's gallery of the CBOE, the Chicago Board Options Exchange. And one of my friends had said, look, being a lawyer is great, but you don't see lawyers clicking their heels, jumping around in the street with joy. And then I walked to the CBOE and it just seemed totally alive. And so I ditched my law school dream and started fresh there working for Goldman Sachs in their market making division. And the way that we consistently made money as a market maker, which is really a dealer for options, was setting the price for any trade that comes into the trading floor. So I was literally in the S&P 500 pit and orders would come into the pit and you would have to sort of judge, almost look in the broker's eyes and figure out if it's a big order, who's the order from. Like You would try to avoid trading with smart money, so-called smart money, like the bulge bracket banks or like a really good hedge fund. You didn't want to be on the other side of that. 
And if you were, you wanted to get a really good price level. And then you could be more aggressive with retail orders because typically those were smaller and they came in at sort of retail typically has varied views on a certain trade. So I learned a lot about psychology and and human beings on the trading floor in the pit in just an incredible lesson. And it taught me, we'll probably focus what we're talking about today, which is the human beings alone tend to operate in a way that is random, but as the collective, they tend to operate in a way that's actually measurable and that you can take advantage of over certain timeframes at certain times. So I learned this lesson basically on the trading floor was that it's trading over certain timeframes, which are typically shorter. There are times when it's not a random walk. And it's pretty clear that that's the case, which we'll talk about a little bit. But I decided at that point, I really wanted to get into strategy development. And so I jumped over to working for a running the operations for a very large technology trading software company and learning how to research strategies that were very interesting to me. So my first boss at Goldman was a guy named Blair Hall, who he actually has a chapter in the famous Market Wizards book by Jack Schwager. And Blair was a card counter and he understood probabilities and statistical expectation in a way really differentiated from his competitors. So it was a much more robust model. He invested heavily in technology. I mean, millions of dollars, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in technology. And this is the key. He Hired predominantly scientists and mathematicians only with like zero experience in finance. And so he would like poach talent from like physicists from Fermilab in Chicago. Typically, they were somewhat unhappy with pay or some other change in what was going on in their world. And they kind of came into it without having many other opportunities. And so that, again, it just put in my brain, like if you focus on the dynamics of markets rather than like the emotional side of it we can do really well with strategies. And at our trading desk anyway, we weren't smashing the desk when we had bad trades. Every trading loss was really, any short-term loss we knew was necessary in order to confirm that in the midterm, long-term, we would be able to consistently make money. And this was, again, a, a trading desk. So it was a bit different than what we're doing now, running a mutual fund. But those same lessons hit. The key thing was, is that humans act randomly as individuals, but as collective, they act in a very predictable way. And I'll use an example, like if my brother were to buy a stock that he thinks is going to shoot up and it drops 50%, he might double down. My wife, on the other hand, would probably sell it all, right? (laughs) So it's all these different players in the market create and excite certain things in the market that create a certain predictability, a stampede during certain periods. And that's what we try to take advantage of in the fund. There's a book, I was trying to find it, The Wisdom of Crowds. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the whole kind of generally what you're talking about. I think it's that's sort of the premise of yes, but yeah, you have all this. It's like some kind of stability in the chaos. Yep, the pattern it seems to be this random, like you're describing. But if you anyway, it's all how you look at it. Interesting. Yeah, and that book, there's several like it that dive into like other rabbit holes. But like that's exactly right. We we're taking advantage of these what we believe these consistent waves that exist in markets that are not so random. Let me ask you this real quick, because I don't want to forget. Initially, you talked about you like systems and you like, I forget the exact wording you use, but is there an element of subject? You talked about the surfing the wave. So I'm guessing this is intellectual proprietary knowledge, but I mean, you've created some kind of a model or an algorithm that you've set parameters that tell you what wave to get on. And is that what you've done effectively? Exactly right. So the wave itself, we have a model that 
sees an incoming wave and really it's the market action moving up to a, a particular point in time. And from a proprietary side, yeah, I mean, we look at the basics and we look at some other things too, of course, but volatility, volume, where the volume's coming from, how the volume's coming in, things of that nature. And so we can predict that wave. But the problem is a lot of people can do that. A lot of people can do that. But running the risk management around it is so critical that we actually do run this sort of belt and suspenders approach to risk where we always have stop losses on every trade that we make. And I always have in my trading life. And not only that, but we also use protective long options on every trade that we put on. I talk about like markets move because of individuals and human beings, but you can have an external event that comes into the market overnight and you have just a massive gap and your model works over long periods of time but it can get hijacked very quickly on very large adverse moves. And so even if we initiated this belt and suspenders risk approach, mainly because we didn't want to get hijacked and at any time, and it costs a little bit to the portfolio every year. We've been running a strategy like this for seven years, but it's been well worth it. No, that's great. All right. So is it fair to say that this is a little more, you're looking at this you call it the herd mentality, I think I've read in material. This is beyond just the pure fear and greed cycle. I mean, is that? Yeah, yeah. Layers deeper. So maybe I'll speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. There's things in the market that are imperceptible. There's sort of those two binary fear and greed that people always talk about in markets, but there's all those variations of things in the middle. And if you're only going to put on a trade when there's maximum fear and maximum greed, you're not going to be trading very often. And that doesn't allow for a very consistent return. So if you're basically in the middle somewhere that, that is an acceptable level where you believe that, and this, the model really believes, or the model indicates that you have some edge, then you'll put the trade on. So what I like to compare it to is by analogy, really, which is there are earthquakes. We don't know when the earthquake is going to occur, but the aftershocks are actually quite predictable. And we're just trading these earthquakes after the earthquake or the earthquake lets, like we have little sell-offs or little spikes in the market all the time. And we're just trading off of those. And then we trade what is, we'll call it probabilistically predictable to be safe on the compliance side. But probabilistically, we believe that if you trade enough times, in our case, we do about 100 to 120 trades a year with a certain amount of edge per trade, then you'll have a barely smooth return stream. And again, this requires taking lots and lots of little losses. But in the end, you have a very high expectation of return. That's, and I think what you just said is that's the different view that people have to wrap their head around. That's what trend following, which is we have a portfolio that does that. That is it. There's the acknowledgement that there's going to be losses. You just accept the fact that that's a part of the equation, like you said before, the longer term view versus just sitting there and kind of being static and waiting, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I've seen it. Fundamental managers may fall under this. They have a view of valuation for a company. They execute a trade and then they wait for that valuation to appear over time, over some time frame. We don't do that at all. I mean, we're looking to ensure that our left tail, so to speak, like our losses have a maximum loss by trade. And once a certain trade goes against us far enough over a certain period of time, we have to cut our losses short. So yeah, I think you'll find that more in fundamental shops. I mean, again, I've seen fundamental managers that are incredibly disciplined, but it's more a, a time game. It's like, well, we'll perform this way in five to 10 years. Well, we don't have that luxury. And a lot of the trend followers don't either, as I know. 
So we just can't take big losses. Otherwise, we won't achieve what I value and what our clients come to expect. Sure. No, I get it. So maybe elaborate then a little bit on this psychology part of it, this herd mentality, because I think that's really interesting. And I know when we spoke before, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but this idea that these black swan events, they're portrayed as these, I think, once in a lifetime circumstances. But if I'm getting your view right, these are more frequent because of the behavior element to it. Is that right? That's right. And if you look at the down moves in the S&P 500, let's say, like the number of times the S&P 500 has gone down 50% or more. I mean, we've had that happen twice in the last, what is it, 20 years. So that should happen like it's like once every 3 million years, if it's normally distributed. (laughs) So markets are, there's clearly something not random happening. I promised you a multimedia podcast. So I I do have a video. It's about 20 seconds. I'll remain quiet, but just let me know. The key here is I started trading my electronic trading career in London. And it was the year was 2000 and London, they opened up the Millennium Bridge. And I think this is going to just allow people to visualize how herding affects certain dynamics. There's certain complex systems. But the bottom line is the engineers thought that human beings would step in ways that are random, are totally random. And so they designed the bridge in a way as a span bridge in a way that they didn't expect to have a lot of swaying side to side. Well, unfortunately, when there's even little movement in the bridge, people start to walk in lockstep and you'll see the results as I share with you the screen. Hold on one moment. This is great. This is an upthinking finance first. (laughs) (laughs) Usually I'm the one putting up the stuff. This is great. All right, one second here. Can you see the screen? Yes, sir. Perfect. All right, I'll stop it there. But you get the idea. You see people initially walking randomly, and then the bridge starts to sway a little bit, and then they start walking laterally, hold their balance. And then just like a stampede happens in the markets, I mean, we saw a stampede on banks last month, which is we had one or two big names say, hey, you need to get out of this bank or that bank. And then slowly, other folks started to take their money out, and then everybody took their money out and ultimately had to be taken over by the FDIC. So this happens in social phenomena like traffic jams. We don't know when someone's going to hit the brakes, but we know what the reaction is going to be. It happens in a lot of physical phenomena, uh, solar flares. Obviously, we talked about earthquakes, and it definitely happens in markets, and we all feel it. Get a sense of the uh, broker's eyes. What I saw as a young trader was seeing the fear in the broker's eyes, that he knew he had to sell 10,000 option contracts before the close, and he only had five minutes. So you knew he was going to continually sell, 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 and you didn't want to be the first one on that order. So we see that a lot in markets. One thing I can do is sort of getting into this herding behavior. I've got a few slides I can share. But one thing I wanted to highlight is my partner actually works in this exact space, which is he's a mathematical, I would call him a world-class mathematician. His name is Arnold Englander. He's a PhD in engineer, and he's worked on the stochastics team at NASA on mapping interplanetary mission trajectories. And his main core work in his career has been working with internet congestion or internet traffic. And so everything he does, his whole career has just been dialed into this phenomena of randomness that causes this kind of stampeding. And so I I discovered him, let's put it that way, about 10 years ago. And it was pretty clear he was the guy that was going to be a perfect fit to my ability to run the protective overlays that he would be a huge help on the research side. So And I'll note, because this is important as you look at, as folks look at various strategies in the space, managed future strategies, 
the amount of computational power we have now that we had <laughs> compared to 25 years ago is just immense. We're able to do things I never thought we'd be able to do on terabytes of data. And it's not cost prohibitive. Even for smaller shops or smaller firms, they're able to compete on a totally playing field. We've been able to take advantage of that. So there's been some trends in the market that have been helpful. So that's great. And I think we could spend an hour talking about just the leveling of the playing field. And actually, I think, in my view, the smaller operations actually have advantages because of not only the ability to access and process information, but something you said about there's an element of an open mind <laughs> and an independent thought, because how many people bring on non-financial people because of an expertise that ultimately, you know what I'm saying? Usually it's, you know, everybody's looking for somebody with a CFA and these qualifications that are kind of the standard, all the stuff, right? And you're bringing a guy in because of, he has a specialty in a completely unrelated area that is related. I just think that's really unique. And I think to me, that's an advantage that I don't think a lot of these big operations would even open their mind to. Yeah, I think there's a way people speak in our business that you and I become comfortable with. When I started with my partner, Arnold, he didn't speak in that way. <laughs> and he didn't have sort of views. I had my own views that were guided a lot by that first book I read, Random Walk Down Wall Street, where I didn't think it could be done. I didn't think this could be done. So, And his was, well, it can be done. I've done it with these big tech companies in alleviating internet traffic, things of that nature. And it's because the randomness we see in internet traffic, the kind of randomness we see is very similar to the randomness we see in all these other things. And markets have the exactly the same setup as those things. I've got a slide that will show you. Yeah, let's yeah, go let me show you a slide. I'll just go through what we're talking about here. One moment. Let's start here. And we reviewed a lot of this already, but our main assertions are markets are driven by human beings. And that's what ultimately drives them in ways that are estimatable. I'm not going to say predictable again, <laughs> but estimatable. And human behavior drives markets. So there's opportunity. There's these trends, which I mentioned earlier. And like you said, we could have an entire another 45 minutes on this, but there's been this rise of electronic trading. I mean, trading for the most part took place on the trading floor for decades. And that's very few people could really meaningfully participate. Now we've got anybody with a laptop can trade. So we have a lot of retail coming in and there's a lot more places you can trade. There's been this fragmentation of exchanges. There's a lot more exchanges. Now, this trend has been also happened while there's been a consolidation, a huge consolidation of actual dealers and market makers. Those are the people that are making prices on trades. And so what's happened is there's only like, let's call it three to five in the options market that are still big enough that they're making markets on everything. And what happens is as soon as their inventory gets so high one way or the other, they have to completely fade orders or reprice all of their options. So we've seen it where markets will go down a lot faster than they used to. They go up a lot faster than they used to. This is a trend that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years as there's fewer banks, period, but there's fewer folks in the space. That's a big deal. It's a nuance that a lot of people don't see in the market microstructure. And it's a reason why you see more volatility at certain times than others. There's also a lot more sort of retail traders with the aging baby boomers looking to do something and diverse traders. Everybody has access. Now, this slide, this really gets into, 
I love this slide. I don't know if it speaks to you, Emerson, but it speaks to me, which is someone just says something without meaning much to it. And all of a sudden it goes from an Excel to a sell order to a buy order, right? It's really just human beings are really bad at managing risk. They're really emotional creatures. There's these feedback loops that happen, which is great for us. It excites these feedback loops that are both positive and negative. So again, we don't always know how humans will react to certain news and events, but we have a pretty good idea of how they'll react once they start moving together. Again, just like that, once you see the Millennium Bridge start to sway even a little bit, you know it's going to end up being a huge problem. So No, this is great. <laughs> Sadly, I can't appreciate it. Yeah. 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 It's just a nice breakdown of all the different folks that are trading in markets. I mean, you have hedgers. I would imagine you're probably a lot of these people. I am too. I mean, I've been a victimized trader myself. But it just shows you that you need to have this diverse population trading in order to create the kinds of dynamics that I believe can create these strategies with really nice properties with low drawdowns, et cetera, et cetera, because it allows you to put trades on when you have a little bit of edge, meaning there's an asymmetry to your risk reward. And this just breaks it down. I mean, it's really similar to poker, where in poker, you don't play your hand, you play the player, not the hand. And it goes down to that. Same with John Maynard Keynes. He said there's the beauty pageant analogy he's used, which is it's not who you, th- you personally think is the most beautiful in the beauty pageant. It's who you think the judges will think is the most beautiful. And all we're doing or all we're trying to do as fund managers is interpret how the people trading markets will react to certain events. Well, on this particular chart, each of these different little subgroups has their own interest, let's say, right? So on an independent basis, they're all doing sort of their own thing. But at some point, the actions of, it's like the bridge again. I mean, that's really a great example. One of these groups start doing things, it impact impacts the others. And pretty soon, that's just where this pattern emerges. Is that kind of... I'm glad you put it together like that. Yes. And folks they call parasitic traders and dealers and market and let's agents, they all start moving in the same way. As soon as they see markets are down 1%, 2%, the S&P 500 goes limit down 5%, they're all going to start reacting typically in a way that's quite similar. And it's going to cause this sort of positive feedback loop. Oh, okay. So I got to interrupt you. So is this kind of behavior, at least a component of when people say the market's rigged, effectively, is it because there are these special interests that all start aligning together in a certain way? Am I connecting the dots in the right way? You know, I never thought about it like that, but this is what I'll say. There are certain members of this group, I'm not going to name who, but that have a slight timing edge. So typically it's going to be high frequency traders. They're going to be sub millisecond to hit the exchange with an order. I don't even know how fast it is now. It's probably some microsecond or something, but they can hit the exchange way ahead of retail. And typically they want to get all their position off if they anticipate some really bad number coming in. I mean, what they'll do is they'll have like Twitter going and they'll have all these different ways of measuring a certain number that comes out. I mean, at two o'clock today, Eastern, we've got the Fed. So as soon as that number hits, they're going to hit the market. Well, my aunt in Iowa, she's not going to be ahead of them. As soon as she sees that, she'll probably see it, read the Wall Street Journal tomorrow and she see, oh, the markets are down. She's not going to be able to hit the bid or lift an offer in a microsecond that I'm aware of. <laughs> so yeah, it definitely plays into it. Great point. So I'm not going to cause too much brain damage with this particular slide. 
<laughs> I saw this and I thought, yeah, I that's promise exactly it's getting late do. in the podcast. But what I'll say is the only thing I want folks to take away is news comes in as white noise into this filter, which is just the market. This is just Mr. Market right here. Trader one versus trader two. And it leaves with this turbulence, this kind of turbulence on the right hand side. So it comes in white noise. It leaves with turbulence. What causes the change? It's human beings. And this is, I promised you a comparison of the markets to a seismogram, which is on the top is just the daily moves of the S&P 500 over, this is like a 20-year period. This is actually the 2008 sell-off, but it doesn't much matter. They all look kind of the same. There's this volatility clustering that happens, and then this subsiding of volatility. You see, there's like a certain pattern to, no matter how big the first spike is in the volatility, there's this like subsiding of volatility this huge spike in 2008, and then the subsiding of volatility, but with spikes that are shorter and smaller and have different shapes to them. But there's a familiar pattern there once you get a big spike. On the bottom panel is the Japan earthquake from, what was it, 15 years ago, 13 years ago, something like that. You'll see on the seismogram, the actual earthquake hits, it's the largest, and then the familiar pattern of subsiding aftershocks, where you have spikes within that move, but it moves in a familiar pattern, much like you see that in the S&P 500. If there's one graphic that I think tells our story anyway, it's this one. So basically, these things follow a very familiar sequence, and we just try to ride those waves and surf those waves as best we can. This will be sort of the last slide, unless we want to dive into it more. But it's really coming to where we are in this cycle. I don't know where we are. I don't make any macro calls anymore. (laughs) I I really never did. Yeah, smart. Uh, But there are strategies that work and work and work and work, and you can have lots of edge. But I mean, our strategy as well, there's no different than any of the other trend followers or mean reversion strategies or whatever folks are doing. There's always that opportunity for massive cliff risk. We try to hedge the unknown unknowns as best we can. I would say I just got back from Italy I'm sure other folks have thought about this, but I brought the kids to visit Pompeii, which sits on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius, which is, of course, famous volcano that erupted and killed anyone that was left in the town. I mean, you think about it like the years and decades and centuries before 79 AD, when Vesuvius exploded, these wine growers were living a really nice life, just like the turkey. And there's actually lots of evidence that that was going to happen. So I think it's like two thirds of the town actually left Pompeii. But there's certainly things now in the market that look lofty. Again, that's not what I do. I'm not a fundamental analyst and or valuation guy, but I always like to sort of come to a close in any talk I have with something like this turkey weight over happiness, over happiness. <laughs> so, I mean, here's the question because I ask is how well is this? received. Because my observation on my side of the desk, and I will speak as a guy who the intermediary that connected me with you, the joke of that is, is he reached out to me probably back in 2017. And I think I responded with something along the lines of remove me from his distribution. (laughs) (laughs) And well, because the point of it was, was that the QE world that we were living in for so long, I mean, 40 years of low interest rates. I mean, I got in this business, you asked earlier, in 86 as a teller at a savings loan in Southern California. But I do remember people coming in with their mutual fund checks right after Black Monday in 87. And instinctively, I knew that that was a mistake. I didn't know anything about anything, but that just felt wrong to me. But It wasn't really until I reached out to him a couple of years ago or so, because my mind started opening, 
So how do you, I mean, I guess that's the question, you know, as a person who obviously interacts with the investment community on a different, your circles are different than mine. I mean, how do people receive it? Honestly, how is this, what do you call it, managed futures group scene? Yeah, well, I think there are categories within managed futures. I think trend following, for folks that follow trend following, they know it's had a really rough run. We're not really a trend follower, but it had a great year last year. So for the trend following folks, I would say they're probably received better now, but it's really with a strategy like this that's highly quantitative. Some people call it black box, right? And how is it received? How are we received? I would say lots of people say, well, it's a black box. I don't know what's going on there. I don't understand it. And I can't invest in something I don't understand. And I don't understand. And typically it's like, well, gravity was a black box until an apple fell on Newton's head, right? So all we're using is we're using the same tools and toolkit of a trader that does things in his head or does things on Excel. And we're putting it into a machine that can do it a lot faster and can look at a lot more data quickly and then send it out and take all this and give us spit out a signal. I mean, it's as simple as a signal that you would generate from, hey, I'm a long short manager and I think this stock is going to outperform this stock. So we'll put on a pairs trade. We're just using computers to do it. So that's when you say, how do people receive it? I think they're a little bit nervous because there's like this headline risk. Well, this guy told me that he could predict markets and we're not really predicting markets. What we're doing is we're trading when they're probabilistically predictable. So, and we make enough trades that over just a year, we've been up every 12 month rolling period, but then since I've traded it, but it's a matter of folks stepping back from what they've really become comfortable with. It hasn't hurt to be long bonds and long equities from since 1981, right? (laughs) And so to get advisors on board, it's just going to take a lot of education. And that's why what you're doing here with Upthinking Finance is just like, is one piece of it. I've really just started marketing this particular fund because like the broker who talked to you three years ago, I mean, the first thing he said to me was, Paul, it looks awesome. You've got great returns as a private fund. I'm like the show me state. You're going to have to show me some performance and show me what you're doing on a performance side. So if you can show them performance, then your story becomes a little more easy to sell. I'd say there's a guy, James Simons, who you, you may be familiar with, who runs Renaissance Technologies. There's a great book about him called The Man Who Solved the Market. And he really didn't solve the market. What he did was he figured out ways, the relationships of things that work together. He did a lot of the stuff we do with hidden Markov models and sort of working with probability distributions. But I think he only raised like 10 or 15 million bucks his first 10, 15 years because He had the same problem that everybody does in the space, which is making the story translate. And so we have some very, I hope, easier to understand analogies that are, they really look the exact same dynamics of earthquakes or the exact same dynamics we see in the S&P 500. And we just hope that takes, but not everybody's going to love us. Well, I'll tell you what, as we sit here in May of 2023, having this conversation, I've noticed... Well, I've noticed a couple things, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm the guy in this industry with all the answers, but I know that once I open my mind up to things, you see patterns in a lot of different places. You see that there are a lot of firms that have websites that all look different, but it's the same approach. Stock portfolio, top down, bottom up, whatever it is, it's still a stock portfolio. Bonds are bonds, and that's where it ends. And it's just different mixes with different styles, but you're ending up with the same thing. And What I'm finding is there's clients, we're coming in contact with some really interesting people all across the country that they are looking for a different view of things. They are sensing that there's just the old way of doing things 
people are ready for something else. And that's why it's not just me being ready as an advisor, because that's certainly part of it, but there's something else going on. And I just think it's really good timing for conversations like this. But I feel like the place for these different strategies and strategies that are coming from, I hate to say it this way, I can't think of the right word, but smaller players, more independent thinkers, organizations that are just a little, not kind of tied to a traditional way of doing things that aren't worried about benchmarks. I mean, the whole thing, I don't know, I've been licensed for 30 years and it just feels like the tide is finally shifting in a lot of ways. Anyway, that's just an observation from me that I think speaks well to the future for what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's more, I mean, I hate to say it, but I've got lots of beta risk in my own portfolio. Just a slice of a portfolio of kind of returns we have, which are generally uncorrelated to anything, is nice to have. In some ways, we're anti-correlated when you really need it. I've been getting a lot more calls than I used to get. (laughs) And it's really, folks have been really comfortable, I think, in a beta world that's been rewarded. And buying dips has been rewarded. There's no guarantee of that. In the next 20 years, it's going to probably not look anything like the last 20 years. Agreed. So let me ask you this. I didn't get at it in the beginning, but it's kind of a final thought. What drives you? I mean, you're a smart guy. You just, like I said, work for some firm and just kind of sit back and track benchmarks and get your bonuses every quarter and buy the select group. of. You know, I mean, you could do all that, but I know you shared your history, but I'm always just curious, really, because to me, there's a bit of a nobility. I keep using that word in these interviews to got people who are taking, I guess, say the hard road, that Robert Frost poem, you came to the crossroads and you took the road less traveled. What drives you that way? Yeah, I think we're not doing it as a public service, but we're about as close to doing it as a public service as you can get in our business, which is, I saw... I worked at the Carlisle Group prior to this in their quantitative market strategies team. And I saw there were almost no really good liquid alternatives for retail. And I thought if we could supply a great strategy for retail in a mutual fund wrapper that has daily liquidity, that folks would come to it because I thought the performance is going to be really, really good. And it has been. And it's done what we said it would. And I think that we are really growing from here. I mean, we've tripled our fund size in a very short order, but... There's not a lot of alternatives right now for retail that's not correlated because everything's kind of floated into some kind of beta proxy funds. So that's what drives me. And it's the same thing that drove my dad to work for a college rather than be a mutual fund manager. I think I still have that. Maybe a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about offering something that people can will do like what we say it does. I appreciate that. I just I really want to thank you for the time, Paul. It's just one of the things that's been a real benefit for me meeting people like you is inspiring doesn't the fit, but I just it's there's sort of a hopefulness that comes from people who are looking at this kind of work beyond just collecting fees, that there's a higher purpose to it. And that's kind of the firm that I run with my partner, Amy and I'm glad that there's a consistency because now we're affiliating with people like you are on that same plane. I just think there's a power in that. And again, people seem to be responding. responding. I just want to thank you for your time today. It's great talking to you. Thanks so much for being on Upthinking Finance. Yeah. No, this this is my pleasure. And more we can educate together, I'd love. So thanks a lot, Emerson. Awesome and great. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. 
To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.